attention, please. This is a piece of art. This Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what you're listening to right now is the latest in my Smallville retrospective series. In case it wasn't obvious, I love Smallville. Because of that, I use every eighth episode to talk about it. It's a pretty simple reason, actually. Smallville's my favorite TV show ever. On top of that, it's also my favorite incarnation of Superman, except for the comics. Smallville is number one for me, but saying that out loud is risky business. It can be, anyway, because there are a lot of people out there who think Christopher Reeve deserves the top spot on everybody's list. Just because. Now, don't get me wrong. I dig Chris Reeve as Superman. The Reeve Superman movies were the starting point for my Superman fandom back when I was a kid. I love Reeve, but he's not at the top of my list. My favorite live action Superman? Honestly, it's tough to decide between Tom Welling and Henry Cavill, but none of that matters. What I'm saying here is that I talk about Smallville every eighth episode, but things used to be different. Once upon a time, I'd use every eighth episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality to talk about Star Wars. You can dig those episodes out of the archive if you want, but what I came to discover after a while is talking about Star Wars comics just wasn't for me. I mean, I love the original Unaltered Star Wars trilogy, but when you get too far away from that, I tend not to have a whole hell of a lot to say about Star Wars. Or at least not as much as I originally thought. So that made it a little hard to continue my Star Wars shows. But another problem was that I realized establishing a designated Star Wars episode as part of my format might have been just a little too similar to Two True Freaks and what they do with their monthly Star Wars show. Or, I worried about it, anyway, even if nobody else did. But, you need to understand, when I first established the format of this podcast, 
all I really had in mind was creating a format that seemed cool to me. I didn't consider anything beyond that. So what I came up with was six episodes to talk about whatever I want, a seventh episode for the DC Paradox Press Big Book series, and finally, the eighth episode was to be dedicated to Star Wars comics. And like I said, that seemed like a cool format to me at the time, so I ran with it. I didn't really think too much uh, about how similar the Star Wars thing is to Two True Freaks at all. But it became a slight consideration when I was still podcasting from Libsyn. And then it progressed into total panic when I joined up with the Two True Freaks podcast network ages and ages ago, whenever that was. As a matter of fact, I think it'd be fair to say that joining the Two True Freaks podcast network was pretty much the beginning of the end of my eighth episode Star Wars shows. Anyway, so a really long way of saying that I made the executive decision to discontinue the eighth episode Star Wars shows. As I say, I just wasn't as passionate about it as I originally thought I'd be, and I didn't want to take the chance of getting into the doghouse with Scott and Chris. Now, I'm not saying that I'll never talk about Star Wars ever again, because I'm absolutely positive that I will. Hell, back in episode 99, I had an episode that was all about The Phantom Menace. My point, though, is that when I do talk about Star Wars again, it's just not going to be a designated fixture of my show anymore. That's all. So, no big deal. Still, something had to take the place of Star Wars, right? And eventually I remembered that when I first started the show, I'd attracted a crapload of attention beginning from my very first episode, which I used to defend Smallville from a bunch of idiotic gripes and criticisms that people have made over the years, that I personally feel hold absolutely no water. So the idea went that maybe I could take a little bit of a mulligan on that and revisit Smallville as a TV series by analyzing it. You know? Rather than defend it, I could actually go on the offense and just show how punk rock Smallville truly is. You know? Talk up all of Smallville's best elements and strong points. Now, I'm not arguing that Smallville's flawless. I never would. In fact, I'd be the first to admit that Smallville has several weaknesses and poor decisions working against it. A lot of things maybe could have been done better. And the reason I say that is because, honestly, the people who argue that Smallville's perfect just as it is scare me a little bit. And they're out there. No shit. You don't even have to look very hard to find them. But the idea beyond all that stuff is that it, it just bugs a fuck out of me when vast swaths of the so-called fan base just fail to see the merits of Smallville. I guess my point here is Smallville doesn't deserve the crap that it takes from people on the internet. I mean... These are people who should know better. Don't, and don't take that the wrong way. I'm, if Smallville just isn't your brand of vodka, 
Well, whatever. That's cool. But there's a faction of supposed fans out there who never miss a chance to argue that Smallville somehow pisses on everything that makes Superman awesome. Well, if you base that decision on how well Smallville fits in with the continuity and or tone of the Reeve movies, yeah, I can kind of see where Smallville might be a little bit of a pisser for you. If your Superman fandom is limited to the Reeve movies, I can totally see where Smallville just isn't your thing, especially from the second season onward. But if you never bothered to give Smallville a chance in the first place, these retrospectives that I do might be just the thing for you. Uh, Who knows? You may come away from these things as a fan of the series. That's the idea, anyway. When I was first considering doing all these Smallville retrospectives, the thought very briefly crossed my mind that I could do commentaries for every single episode of the show. But eventually I realized that I'd have to record in excess of 200-something commentaries. Now, I'm awesome, don't get me wrong, but I just don't have time for that, you know? And let's cut the bullshit for just a minute, shall we? Recording a commentary for all of the dreaded season four just wouldn't be pretty. I mean, it, it could very, I, I could very well end up losing my mind by episode 10 of that season. <sighs> the dreaded season four sucks. <sighs> this could get messy. But, uh, look, whatever, that's, that's the future. What I'm saying right now is that these little eighth-episode retrospectives are a pretty good way to knock out a handful of Smallville episodes in one go as I bash my way through the entire show. There's more than enough material with these Smallville retrospectives to last for years' worth of eighth-episode shows. Anyway, so the point here, just to kind of sum up, Switching the format for these eighth episodes from Star Wars to Smallville seemed like a good idea. As I go through all this stuff, though, my goal is to take a sort of holistic approach to my analysis. What I intend to do is tie ongoing subplots and other continuity nuggets in subsequent seasons, tie all that stuff back to what's come before as I go along. This is primarily because Smallville's continuity is in incredibly underrated. For whatever reason, people just refuse to acknowledge how much time, effort, and planning went into each Smallville story. Because of that, I don't think Smallville ever got enough credit for having good continuity. So one potential outcome here is that I just might set the record straight when it comes to how awesome Smallville's continuity is. And there you have it. Now, As a show, Smallville started off back in the first season by emphasizing Clark's moral judgment. The more the season progressed, the more Clark excelled at making the right choice at the right time. And usually for the right reasons. That started getting called into question, though, beginning in the second season. As the second season went along, Clark's judgment was more and more flawed. His fallibility and errors in judgment are why it became so believable 
that he'd hide out in Metropolis between Seasons 2 and Mighty 3 the way he did. Clark's character arc here in The Mighty Season 3 might seem to some people to be a little bit murkier. On the one hand, he's back to making good decisions again, but unlike the first season, negative consequences are never far away from Clark, whether he chooses right or if he chooses wrong. There are very few times when you can really say that Clark was totally out of order in The Mighty Season 3, but he and others still suffered the consequences all the same. One of the biggest, most important lessons anybody can learn in life is that even doing the right thing sometimes has consequences. What we see through a good bit of The Mighty Season 3 is Clark paying the price for making the right choice at different times. Anyway, there'll be more analysis later, but for right now, last time I finished my remarks by talking about the Mighty Season 3 episode called Obsession. And you know what that means. It's time for a break. I'll be right back to resume the discussion about Smallville Season 3, beginning with Episode 15, Resurrection, after these messages. Trick your friends, scare the shit out of your relatives, or keep for your own personal use after you shuffle off this mortal coil. Magnus used tombstones. Perfect for people with names such as John Smith, Billy Bob Cletus Sideburn, Jimmy Hoffa, Nathan Bedford Forrest, Joseph Stalin, and dozens more. Magnus used tombstones. The best used tombstones this side of the other side. Some assembly required. No warranty expressed or implied. Void where prohibited by law. Batteries not included. Some tombstones may be damaged from armed military conflict or nuclear testing. Not recommended for children under the age of 25. Now I'll show you what I already know. As one tiny spark becomes a night of blazing suspense. There is fire, there is smoke. Burn it down! Burn it down! Dick, you're fired! Thank you. Flame on! Hey, Johnny! I didn't know you could ignite parts of your body. Now, to do the job, I need some high octane gasoline. Burn, baby! Burn! Ray Shields. Fire! What would you like to do in the whole world? Burn it all. Your world will burn. Come on, let's burn them all. Go, go. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Third degree burn. 
a podcast looking at all things John Byrne. Available at tutufreaks.com. What a hothead. Oh, hello. We didn't see you there. Welcome to Comic Book Fight Club. My name is Jif S. Fishman, Esquire. And I am Gene Theodore Hendricks. Here at Comic Book Fight Club, we sit fireside, sipping our brandy, and discussing who would win in a bout of fisticuffs with other members of the comic book Illuminati. Yes, you caught us at a good time as Kevin Smith, Stan Lee, and the late Bob Kane just went on a beer and nacho run. Have you ever wondered who would be victorious in a bout? Galactus or Unicron? How about the Incredible Hulk versus the Monster Doomsday? What about G.I. Joe versus the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Or the equally important bout of the Snorks versus the Smurfs? And of course, the Titanic duel between Archie and Jimmy Olsen. And you can expect the intelligent and erudite debates to sound something like this. But I always thought Transformers fans were intelligent and literate, so they should see that Galactus has to be the winner. Like, he's hungry. Oh, I'm so <laughs> hungry. I'm going to get weaker, and, 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 and Reed Richards is going to be able to beat me. I don't know anything about Rob other than uh, he was defeated by Parker Brothers. Oh, it's, uh, I mean, back, to, back to one of Sean's points, saying he got out of the, out of the Silac. You know, every time he's gotten out of that in any story, he has to get put back in it because he's a bitch. Oh, my God! Oh, my God! Oh, ah, 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 oh. No! No! She, oh, I tap she, out! I tap out! You are a sick, out. sick man. I'm not familiar with the last one. I need. I might um, have to hit Google Image Search here. So won't you join us for some witty discourse, a fine snuff, and a tincture of sherry? as we debate over these all-important matters, here only on Comic Book Fight Club. You can find the show at twotruefreaks.com and on iTunes by searching for Comic Book Fight Club. Please also join us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash comicbookfightclub. Hi, this is Erica Durant. You're listening to Magnus talk about Smallville. Okay, I'm back now and continuing my coverage of Smallville's mighty third season beginning with episode 15, Resurrection. A hostage situation develops while Jonathan Kent is recovering from heart surgery, so it's up to Clark to save the day. Now, this episode advances various subplots, but a good bit of the main plot is basically a love letter to how important Jonathan is to Clark. More than any other character who's ever been or ever will be on the show, Clark looks up to Jonathan. Jonathan is Clark's role model, hero, and arguably best friend. So the prospect of losing Jonathan to a heart attack is more than Clark can even bear to think about. 
As good of friends as they may be, there's never any question about who the authority figure in the relationship is, though. Clark listened in on Dr. Scanlon, advised Jonathan and Martha that he needs open-heart surgery, and the sooner the better. Jonathan gets pissed when he hears that Clark was listening in, though, because Clark knows better than to eavesdrop on private conversations. And considering what happened in Whisper, yeah, I'd say that's true. As I said, though, a lot of subplots get advanced in this episode. The Mighty Season 3 is winding down, so it's time to start revealing secrets a little bit at a time in preparation for the big finale. Lacking that, it's time to start building towards some kind of revelation. And that's what Resurrection does. Chloe and Lex's partnership has been going for several episodes now, but it's in full bloom. They're depending on each other to find information that the other can't. This partnership is pretty much restricted to this season, which I think is kind of a shame, actually, because they really do work well together. Plus, Allison Mack and Michael Rosenbaum play very well off each other as actors. But the characters have to go where the story dictates, and I understand that, but I've really enjoyed Chloe being up to our eyeballs in Luther family drama this season, and honestly, I'll be kind of sad to see it go. Still, their scene at Luther Mansion toward the beginning of the episode is masterfully expository, while at the same time also character developing. Once it becomes clear that this situation could get messy, Lex tells Chloe to back off and let him handle things. He says that Lionel's covert res uh, research projects have been known to hurt people. Now, Lex had his memory partially erased, Chloe was threatened and lost her Daily Planet column while her father lost his job. Neither of them needs any more reminders about just how dangerous their situation is and how much worse it could potentially get. The show hasn't gotten into specifics on what Adam Knight's problem is, but this episode is the key. Adam and, and uh, Garrett's brother, Vince, both suffer from the same type of degenerative uh, liver disease. The blood uh, platelet serum Dr. Tang developed under Lionel Luther's orders has been shown to be a temporary antidote. In fact, the serum has the strange ability to revive necrotic tissue. In other words, it revives dead cells. So, what does any of this have to do with Clark? When Garrett holds a serum sample next to his kryptonite bomb, it starts boiling. The last time we saw this effect was back in Phoenix when a vial of Clark's blood was held up to a kryptonite sample, at which time it started boiling. This would tend to explain why Lex was so interested in Clark's blood sample and how Dr. Tang came to be involved uh, in all of this research starting back in uh, Phoenix. Speaking of Adam, though, Lionel ordered his serum to be cut off back in Obsession. In fact, Lionel signed Adam's death certificate in the process. Now, Dr. Tang can't bring herself to do that, and so here in Resurrection, we find out that she's been sneaking Adam's small doses of the serum. It's barely enough to keep him alive, but it's really not enough to stop his suffering. So, in effect, he's miserable 24 hours a day. 
other stuff. There really isn't much to choose from in terms of deeper themes and implications this time out. Resurrection's an episode that wears a lot of its importance on its sleeve. It's, it's an episode dedicated to building subplots to their final destination. And as such, there's really not much room for subtlety in all this, but there are still just a couple of interesting golden nuggets to consider. Don't be here any minute. Martha, you and I both know that there's a chance that things could go south in there. Don't say that, please. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that you and Clark can take good care of each other, but you have to remember our promise. When he's ready, you have to let him go. When that day comes, you'll be standing right beside me. It'll be ages before I can really dive into this, but this isn't casual throwaway dialogue. Or at least it's not in retrospect. There's a lot of shit that's uh, tied up in there. Speaking of which... The only life I'm interested in saving is yours. You do. You save my life every day that you're with us. And we wouldn't trade that for a single moment without you. Again, it'll be ages before I can really get into that, but the day will come when we find out that Jonathan is telling the truth in ways he doesn't even understand. Crisis, episode 16. So yeah, the quick summary of this episode is that future Lana calls present-day Clark because she's under some sort of attack. So, how the hell's that even possible? That's the premise of Crisis. Now, Lana working at a Crisis telephone center is one of those things that's basically convenient for this episode, and that's why we've never heard of her working in a place like this before. And we're never going to hear about it again. For as gimmicky as the Crisis Telephone Center plot thing is, though, my hat is off to Brian Peterson and Kelly Souders for what seemed like offhand dialogue from Pete, but later comes to take on a whole new level of importance. Your parents are divorcing? Yeah, I know that can be tough. I just thought it was clever. Anyway. Clark, Chloe, and Lana pour over the recording of future Lana, calling present-day Clark, and there comes a point... <clears throat> there comes a point where Chloe suggests that the call came from the future. Now, <clears throat> nobody objects to her hypothesis because, let's face it, they all live in Smallville. They see kryptonite-infected weirdos all the time. The idea of a call coming from the future? That's Tuesday in Smallville. Excuse me while I light up a cigarette here. Still, the weird shit in Smallville is, left, uh, is less of a secret now than ever. Sheriff Adams may even be a believer at this point because she admits that she can't explain half the bullshit she sees in Smallville. But if she could, she'd write a best-selling novel about it. Other stuff. Up next, we've got a scene in Lionel's office between Lex and Lionel where 
Lex pretty much blows the whistle about Dr. Tang, goings on at Metron Labs, the blood platelet serum, the whole program. <clears throat> Everything he learned back in Resurrection. Now, usually scenes like this end with Lex either strong-arming strong Lionel to give something up, or else to close something down. That's the script that Lionel's accustomed to working from in these sorts of moments. So, imagine his surprise when the objective of Lex throwing his balls around like that is basically angling to be put in charge of the Metron Labs blood serum project. This is another grenade, but it's a short-term one. My point, though, is that it's building to something. By itself, it's really not a spoiler to say that this whole uh, Metron Labs subplot is going to be resolved by the end of the season. Hell, before even that. But the character conflicts that come out of this inform the rest of the series. But... <sighs> but beyond all that, the Mighty Season 3 in general, and this scene in particular, point to a darkening of intent as far as Lex is concerned. Before this point, Lex was only willing to cross certain ethical lines to get the job done, only certain ones, under certain circumstances. It's a limited thing, or it was. He wouldn't hesitate to stop short of the goal if he thought, of, uh, if he thought that a project, if he truly believed that a project of his might threaten innocent lives. That's not the case here. This scene marks the first time where Lex shows a willingness to cross every conceivable boundary. Ethical, moral, legal, you name it. Now, true, it'll be a few more seasons yet before Lex's journey reaches its conclusion, but then again, Lex's arc moves more slowly than Clark's does, at least per capita. It's part of being a supporting character on the show. It's, it goes with the territory. Lex's character trajectory can be a lot more subtle than Clark's, but it has to be relatively front and center in everything that Lex does. Clark can afford to be written as a character who simply reacts to goings-on with a given episode subplot. Or he can, at least once in a while, be written that way, but Lex can't. His scenes have to say something about his mental state at the time. There really can't be a standalone episode for characters like Lex. And understand, Lex knows what he's up against. Every day, he sees the reality of what he could become in his own father. It's no mystery to him what fate could hold in store for him. That makes it all the more powerful when Lex is shown willing to tempt that fate. Doesn't last too long, though. When Lex sees the carnage and dead bodies at Metron Labs, courtesy of Adam Knight, Lex kind of understandably gets cold feet. It's one thing to think that he can involve himself in projects that might cause harm. It's obviously something else entirely, though, when he faces what, what could go wrong with those projects. Lionel can apparently live with that, but Lex can't. Not yet, anyway. Now, excuse me while I have another drag off my cigarette. Speaking of Lionel... We finally get his motivation 
for all this business with blood platelet serums, rare liver diseases, and other shit. If it wasn't obvious by now, Lionel admits to having the same uh, liver disease. Now, we can surmise that everything he's tried so far has failed, and because of that, he's been forced to develop the serum as his last option. He can't easily do that, though, if he's in prison, so he sets Lex up to take the fall for Metron Labs. Hey, small price to pay for having extra time to perfect that serum. Lionel probably figures he can pin the charges on Lex and then just buy Lex's way to freedom. Lex's history with mental illness may even prove useful with all this. In fact, that if you really want to read between the lines, that could be part of the reason why Lionel invented Lex's mental instability in the first place. Now, I will be the first to acknowledge that's nowhere explicitly. I just think it fits Lionel's character. Now, Lex cutting a deal with the FBI to sell out Lionel in order to escape, to escape prosecution by the Metropolis PD probably wasn't what Lionel had in mind, but that's exactly what happens here. Now, this next thing is a minor little nitpick, but when present-day Clark gets off the phone with future Lana... He speeds off, but without the usual sound effect that goes with it, that you know? I mention it not to give anybody a hard time about it, but, but to say that this happens a couple of more times in other episodes, and it's always disorienting because the sound effect helps sell the visual of Clark blurring out of the frame. So when someone forgets to put it in, I don't know why, but... The visual effect of super speed just looks off-kilter somehow. Anyway, deeper themes and implications. In the opening teaser, we watch future Lana get shot to death by Adam. That's what present-day Clark is hearing. And in that future, Lana dies. Period. End of discussion. It's Lana's destiny at that point. But... As with Hereafter, Clark's able to alter destiny. As Mark Verheiden said about uh, Hereafter, he's the writer of Hereafter, by the way. As Mark Verheiden said about Hereafter, Smallville, uh, Smallville's version of Clark exists on a different plane of metaphysical reality. So, if Clark can save people in spite of Jordan's visions in Hereafter, he's already altering that person's destiny. He's already altering the future. In that sense, all Crisis does is take that to the next logical stage of interpretation. Clark can foil Jordan's precognition. We saw him do that in Hereafter. Altering the future in spite of having heard that future come to pass isn't too much of a stretch under the circumstances. Now, another drag off my cigarette. Now, Souders and Peterson dotted their I's and crossed their T's with Crisis. Logically, if Clark knew that Adam was going to attack Lana, it'd make no sense for, for him to let her out of his sight. 
He can protect her from anything, so it makes no sense to split them up. So, by having Lionel set Lex up to take the fall for the deaths at Metron Labs and thus implicating Clark in the process, there's a believable circumstance where the police detain Lex and Clark and prevent both of them from protecting Lana. You might think I'm reading too much into this when I say Clark either has or is developing the ability to alter the future in the present. But first of all, I think Souders and Peterson had some idea of what they were doing because later on at the Talon, Lana comments about having control over the future to Clark. And as a side note, that conversation with Lana is meant to sneakily set up a new subplot for her. It won't come into, uh, come into play for a couple of more episodes yet, but Lana might have taken a few of the wrong lessons from this episode. At least by Clark's reckoning. We're nearing the end of the season, so Goff and Miller have to set the stage for next season. Crisis is their first step toward doing so for Lana, Lex, Pete, and Lionel. But second of all in all of this, I can already think of two major Smallville episodes that simultaneously deal with how Clark can alter destiny, whether it's his or somebody else's. I'll deal with those episodes in due time, but what I'm driving at here is that this rule is, as far as I know, consistently applied through Smallville's run. And here's the thing. Brian Peterson and Kelly Souders are usually right there in the thick of it each time this subject comes up. The whole idea and concept of Clark altering destiny. It's funny how often that seems to involve Brian Peterson and Kelly Souders. Now, like I said, there's too much shit here for me to think that it's, it's just a coincidence that Clark exerts so much control over destiny, and they just happen to be involved every time. Anyway. When Crisis aired, it led off with a warning that the episode contained graphic footage of some kind or another. And not very long after that advisory, we see a teenage girl get shot. So, I thought that was what the advisory was warning viewers of. Not so, apparently. The last moment of this episode shows Lionel down some scotch and then he puts a gun under his chin but we never see him do anything with it. Instead, he points the barrel at his face and then we switch to a point of view shot where the barrel of the gun comes closer and closer to the lens, fade to black, roll credits. And keep in mind, this is, an, this is even bigger than it may seem at the outset. It's easy to get lost in the drama of Lionel potentially taking his own life, but consider this. If Lionel pulls that trigger, do you really think that the feds or Metropolis PD are just going to call it a day? Hell no! They'd simply pin the Metron, Lab, uh, Metron Lab's death back on Lex. Lex's destiny is at stake in this, whether Lionel lives or whether Lionel dies. For the moment, the only way Lex can live is if Lionel lives too. If Lionel dies... In a sense, he's taking Lex with him. It won't always be this way, we can sense, but that's how it is right now. If Lionel dies, he takes Lex's freedom with him. It's pretty fucking dark, actually, but 
that's how Crisis ends. And that's how Episode 17, Legacy, begins. For Lionel's participation, anyway. Before that, we see a scene on the farm with the Kents where it becomes pretty obvious that Jonathan is receiving some sort of communication from the Kryptonian Key. Likely because of something to do with Jor-El. From there, we cut back to Lionel, who's about to kill himself. He's stopped, though, when his phone rings. And, honestly, I found that just a little hard to believe. You'd think, if he was determined enough to kill himself, he wouldn't stop just because his phone rang. But whatever, it's just a show, so I go with it. So, Lex is working with the FBI to give them Lionel, in exchange for the Metron Labs charges being, uh, being dropped and immunity for himself. This is the first time Lex is shown to be wearing a wire while the FBI gathers evidence against Lionel. Other stuff. Jonathan's haunted by his deal with Jarrell. He doesn't come right out and say so, but he's worried that this whole mess is going to kill him. And people, he's pushing 50 years old. That's just about the time a lot of people go into a season of life where they second-guess literally every decision they've ever made. Clark can only handle so much of that. He's based a lot of his identity on Jonathan Kent. When Jonathan openly questions the choices that he's made in life, it's not going to take long before Clark wonders if Jonathan's doubts include adopting him, especially considering what that's already cost Jonathan and Martha. I mean, think about it. Jonathan was arrested on suspicion of murder back in Rogue from the first season. Martha lost the baby back in the second season, and Jonathan himself suffered a heart attack right here in the Mighty Season 3. All these things were caused by decisions that Clark did, things that Clark did. It's a fair question for an insecure teenager to ask. Other stuff. There's some solid continuity here. Lionel and Lex have a scene at the Luther Mansion where Lionel reminds Lex, and the viewers, that Clark is the one who first discovered the Kawachi Caves back in Skinwalker from Season 2. Plus, the octagonal opening in the wall disappeared the same day as that explosion back in Exodus, also from Season 2. Those are the clear signs that an episode's gonna have big ramifications upon the season finale. When that much fucking laborious detail has gone into, rest assured, shit's about to get real. And it is about to get real. Apart from that, Clark and Lana have a scene together at the Talon where Clark's uncharacteristically honest with her about his problems, after which he kisses her, which is a kinda sorta total violation of their hands-off agreement that they set up back in Shattered. Now. There are a lot of causes for Clark putting the moves on her. On a textual level, Clark's a mixed up kid who's been through a lot of bullshit lately, and he needs love and acceptance from somebody. And because he's a horny teenage guy, he seeks comfort in a physical relationship with Lana. Okay, logical enough. On a practical level though, the Mighty Season 3's in its final lapse, and Goff and Miller need to build up toward the finale, which necessarily means more drama between Lana and Clark. And you gotta start that shit early on to make it believable. 
Now, that's not me trying to be cynical or anything, but at the same time, I'm not going to bury my head in the sand either and act like the realities of Nielsen ratings didn't somehow figure into this episode. Because they had to have. Anyway, other stuff. There's kind of an elephant in the room here. And that would be Christopher Reeve's guest appearance. Now, the reaction to Legacy was pretty underwhelming when it first aired, and let's face the facts, it's not like Legacy's reputation's radically improved over the years. As an episode, Legacy's just not held in especially high regard. Certainly not the same regard as Rosetta. And I think the reason for that is Christopher Reeve. Now, hear me out before you go berserk over that. If Legacy as an episode had aired, more or less as it is, but without Reeves' cameo appearance, my firm suspicion is that it'd be remembered as a thrill ride loaded with suspense, mystery, and intrigue despair. I think most people would regard it, as a matter of fact, as one of the best episodes of this entire season. But that's not how it is. Legacy features a cameo appearance by Christopher Reeve, and ultimately I think that works to Legacy's detriment. I think Rosetta, from back in Season 2, gave a lot of people a false sense of expectation. I think all of us expected any episode which guest-starred Christopher Reeve to have massive, transcendent importance, just like Rosetta did. And this is probably worsened by the fact that this was Reeves' final appearance on Smallville before he passed away. Now, as good as Legacy might be, maybe we do it and ourselves a disservice if we expect Legacy to be as good or better than Rosetta simply for Christopher Reeves' participation. On its own merits, Legacy is a good episode. A great episode, even. But... The Reeve cameo subconsciously makes us expect Rosetta Part 2, and we don't get that here. But we do get some other valuable bits of business. Swan furnishes information that only he can provide. He also makes judgments and evaluations from a perspective that only he has. My point here is that Legacy is not a waste of Swan or of Reeve. But at the same time, the entire meaning of Clark's life hasn't been called into question by the time credits roll for Legacy. But that happened with Rosetta. And damn it, we all secretly expected something similar from Legacy. And the reason for that is Christopher Reeve's guest appearance. We wouldn't have necessarily expected that from any other episode. But, again, we thought a precedent had been set with Rosetta when one hadn't. Since we're on the subject of Virgil Swan, though, he meets with Lionel and they come to an arrangement of some kind. This ties in with Legacy's deeper themes and implications. The relationship between Lionel and Swan is going to come to be very important to Smallville. Not going to spoil anything, but some incredibly fucking important plot points spring out of this meeting. The problem there is that the true meaning of this scene and Lionel and Swan's deal is never going to be known because Christopher Reeve passed not long after the dreaded season 4 started airing. Now, 
I'm gonna tackle this more in my introspective or my retrospectives about the the dreaded season four, which God have mercy, I'm gonna be starting very soon. But for right now, let it be said that whatever Lionel's scene with Doctor Swan was intended to accomplish, the significance of it is never going to be known and understood. Still, it's a good scene. It's rare for Lionel to meet someone who's just as cunning as he is, but that's what happens here. You see, Swan's ultimately a benevolent character, but that doesn't mean that he's not every bit as shrewd as Lionel. They're equals, and Lionel recognizes that. Lionel never backs down to anybody, but he backs down to Swan, especially after Swan lets slip that he knows Lionel's dying. And that's not exactly public information. Point is, Swan's no pushover. He puts Lionel in his place, and before too long, it's Clark's turn at the whipping post. Turns out, Swan's well aware of the explosion on the Kent farm from the second season episode, Exodus. He also knows that it was Clark who was tearing up Metropolis and robbing ATMs and partying all night long earlier this season. Swan obviously views it as his prerogative to call Clark out on this stuff. Swan wanted Clark to reach greatness, but instead, Clark acted like a spoiled little celebrity all summer. Something else though. Swan reveals that a new message from Jarrell has originated on Earth. And somehow, Swan doesn't think this particular message was meant for Clark. There are other things going on in Legacy, though. This is an early occasion when Clark's human relationships fail him. He sought comfort from Lana, but got shot down. He depended on his dad to be strong and courageous, but Jonathan ran off. He counted on Lex to protect him from Lionel, but Lex failed. He hoped for, for some encouragement from Dr. Swan, but all he got was a lecture. Clark's already had a rough time this season, and I, I gotta tell you, I can't really fault him for wanting somebody, anybody, to cut him a break for once, but he doesn't really get much of that here. Poor kid. Another thing, Jonathan tells Clark that he just doesn't know how to protect him anymore. When Clark was a five-year-old boy, keeping his abilities a secret from the rest of the world was, yeah, it was probably a challenge, but Jonathan knew how to keep it on the down low when all was said and done. Same thing even when Clark started battling supervillains his freshman year in high school. But. Now Clark's got Jarrell breathing down his neck. Jonathan himself is stuck in a rotten deal over it. The Luthers are circling Clark's secret. And barely a year earlier, there was some creepy, mysterious billionaire who lured his son to Metropolis to talk about everything Jonathan's tried to keep under wraps. Jonathan is a man who's losing faith in himself. As far as being Clark's protector, He's a man out of time. His methods don't work anymore. His health is failing him. He misses his own father. And more than anything, I think Jonathan's just tired. 
keeping secrets, dodging supervillains, all this bullshit intrigue, all the drama. It's just taken a massive toll on the guy. And this is not to speak of the fact that Jonathan knows he's looking down the barrel of a gun with his heart problems. Sooner or later, Jonathan knows his number's gonna come up. It's a matter of when, not if. He's scared, lost, lonely, and confused. His admitting to Clark that he doesn't know how to protect him anymore is just... Guys, look, that's more than just desperation. It's Jonathan starting to acknowledge the likelihood that his time has come. I mean, how fucking sad is that? You know? Anyway, apart from that, Lex and Lana have a scene at Luther Mansion. Lex is obviously the ultimate multitasker. He's got a company to run, a job to do, problems with his father to get past, and the FBI breathing down his neck, but Lex still has time to sort through the Talon's books with Lana and also give her some gentle advice about her problems. Here's the thing, though. Lex never outright tells her to turn her back on Clark. But this is the first time he doesn't actively encourage her to be with Clark. This time around, his advice uh, tends toward caution and evasion. Now, you could view that as Lex just trying to look after Lana's best interests. But the other angle is that his advice, that really is a reflection of Lex's own lack of faith in Clark. Earlier in the episode, Agent Loader and that dude who looks like Cypher from The Matrix tell Lex that Clark's all buddy-buddy with Virgil Swan, which Lex clearly didn't know about. Swan and Lionel are two of the richest, most powerful, and most influential men in the world. And they're both fascinated with Clark Kent. I mean, Lex has got to be wondering what the fuck's going on, and if he even knows who Clark Kent really is. And for his part, that's pretty much where Clark's coming from, too. He catches Lex secretly meeting with FBI agents, and he knows that Lex is wearing a wire. Now, all of that is part of a plan to bring down Lionel Luth. I mean, face it. Those are still pretty big secrets for Lex and Clark to keep from each other. Their friendship is incredibly strained right now, and it's not going to get better anytime soon. There are some fun moments in this episode, though. Jonathan and Lionel have a good old-fashioned fistfight in the Kawachi Caves. They've both got health issues bothering them. Failure seems to be their constant companion, and each man sees the other as a direct and immediate threat to his own son. So, in true guy fashion, they take turns beating the stuffings out of each other. Lionel's scars from this fistfight last a couple of episodes. Now, Smallville as a TV series could sometimes be hit and miss with injuries and other shit just miraculously disappearing. And I gotta tell you, that always bugged the fuck out of me. But Lionel's... Lionel carries his wounds from Legacy with him for quite a while, and it's just, it's a really nice touch. I dug it. Truth. Episode 18. The quick summary here is that 
Chloe develops the ability to compel people to tell her the truth to any question she asks, which she's then very happy to print in, in uh, the torch. Yep. This is another character out of character episode. Kook for short. Now, up to this point, I think I've gone pretty easy on Goff and Miller for how they've handled things with Chloe and the torch and the kinds of stories that get printed, but this episode really was a bridge too far. What comes next is just my experience. What I'm about to say may not be true of every high school, everywhere, at every time. It's just what I experienced in my high school. So take it or leave it. But when I was in high school, the school newspaper had an editor. And invariably that editor was a senior. Always, without exception. So already it's hard for me to believe that Chloe's been editor of The Torch since her freshman year, but whatever. Beyond that, the senior whose name is listed at the top of the front page as the editor, he's a lot like the student council president. They're both just figureheads. You can rest assured that a school staff member somewhere is the one who's making all the real decisions. An adult. The most a student editor is allowed to do is probably choose a layout for the newspaper and how each story is arranged on each page. That's it. Now, I'm not denigrating student journalism. It's a valuable learning experience for anybody who's interested in journalism. Plus, being the editor of your school's newspaper is a great thing to have on your transcript, but at the end of the day, it's a strictly ceremonial title and it has little real authority to it. If some school newspaper editor thinks that they're going to be allowed to publish stories about UFOs, meteor rocks, and aliens, he's out of his fucking mind. The most you'd probably be allowed to do is a story about that kind of stuff just once in a while if you can find a way to work it into the context of a news piece that's relevant to the school. The teacher who's really running the show probably wouldn't allow you to even write an editorial about it. They'd insist, and, and, and by the way, just assuming that they even do let you write anything on it, they'd insist on multiple uh, perspectives that are grounded in a, a, just a nominally objective news piece. And by the by, they'd be right to do so. But as far as using the newspaper to report on anything even remotely scandalous, like teachers being wanted for murder, students cheating on tests, or anything that even remotely resembles an expose, there's pretty much no chance of that ever happening. Ever. Now, for every rule, there's an exception. There are circumstances where it could happen. Really fucked up, totally unpredictable, arguably karmic and completely unfucking repeatable circumstances. When I was a junior in high school, several teachers announced that they wouldn't be returning for the following school year. And this kind of thing is very common. It happens all the time. Look, teachers move on. 
I honestly don't think any school anywhere in the world has ever had a completely static lineup of teachers from one year to the next. The nature of these things is to change. So by itself, that's not exactly news. But you know what? I can still see where that might make for a neat little news, page, uh, a little news piece if you, if, if you wrote it right. And apparently that's what somebody on the newspaper staff at my school thought too because they interviewed several teachers who weren't going to be coming back the following school year. The ensuing story, the one that saw print in the paper, was so explosive and possibly litigious that the school principal demanded that every copy of that issue of the newspaper be reclaimed and destroyed. As you can imagine, <laughs> I still have my copy of it because I managed to get my hands on it early. I was friends with the, with the newspaper editor that year. He knew what was coming down the pipeline in the newspaper, and he knew it wouldn't take long for major shit to erupt over it. So when he told me about it, I made sure to swing by the journalism room first thing in the morning to get my copy. Now, basically what happened was, I want to say something like 95% of, uh, of the newspaper story in question, it was probably just about as much of a puff piece as you might expect. Some teachers were retiring. Some teachers had spouses who had gotten job offers in other places, and so they were moving. Some teachers were getting promotions, and they were moving on to bigger and better things, or, or whatever, the usual BS, just on and on and on, right? I remember, in fact, <laughs> tell you, you know, how long ago this was, I remember that one of them was leaving to do consulting work for some computer company here in town to prep them for Y2K. Remember Y2K? I do. Anyway... So, those were most of the quotes in the news piece, and, as you can see, it's, it's mostly no big deal. It's a kind of funny puff piece, but a puff piece nevertheless, because, let's face it, most student journalism, it's a puff piece. The lone major exception to all of this, the 5% of the article that could get the school district sued, or so was feared, that shit was explosive. The very end of the news story quoted the girls' soccer coach and history teacher. He served both, served in both roles. He was a soccer coach and he was a history teacher. I shall call him Mr. Pervert. He was quoted as saying he wasn't leaving willingly. Instead, Mr. Pervert was he claimed being forced to resign by the brass high up at the top of uh, the school, by the administrators, basically. And I was pretty fucking sure I knew why that was, but I'll tell that story in a few, uh, in a, in a few episodes in the future because I think it relates more to that. But the short version is that Mr. Pervert thought he was going to use the school newspaper as his big chance to set the record straight. You know? Tell the real story. Of course, I knew why he was basically getting fired, and I gotta tell you, I was totally cool with it. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, in my opinion. 
then and now. Now, usually this sort of thing would get deleted from the article before it ever saw print. You don't put shit like that in writing in a school newspaper. It simply isn't done. And the reason for that is that the school district could get the shit suit out of it uh, for printing things like that. For liability, if nothing else, you never print news items like that in a school newspaper. Ever. Never, ever, ever, never, ever. And like I said, normally cooler heads would have prevailed on this. The offending section of the article would have been deleted by the journalism teacher, who, I might say, is the real newspaper editor, and life would go on. Nobody would have even known the difference. But that didn't happen this time. Nope. And the reason for that is because, ultimately, the principle of the school from back then is, was, and will always be a very evil human being. In short, the school principal, whom I'll call Mr. McFadass, fired the journalism teacher and ran him out of the school. I shall call that journalism teacher Mr. Innocent Victim, because he was most certainly innocent of the bullshit that he was accused of, but he got fucked over anyway, which makes him a victim. Mr. Innocent Victim, get it? Anyway, so Mr. Innocent Victim got completely fucked over, and I'll talk more about him in, again in, in a, a, a few episodes. The same episode, now that I think about it, where I talk about Mr. Pervert a little bit more now that I think about it, but suffice it to say, Mr. McFadass cha- uh, chased Mr. Innocent Victim out of the school. And totally wrongly so, I might add. <clears throat> now, Mr. Innocent Victim had been the journalism teacher. Well, the school needs some kind of journalism teacher and newspaper editor, and it so happens that it was Mr. Innocent Victim's first year at the school. He was replacing the old journalism teacher who'd retired after my sophomore year. And so I shall call her Miss Retiree. So Mr. McFadass saw an opportunity here. He called Miss, uh, Miss Retiree, <clears throat> and he made her an offer she couldn't refuse. He told her that he'd pay her her usual annual salary for two months of work if she came back and basically finished out what was left of the school year. After the second week of May, the, the thing goes, he would, you know, basically he would pay her one hell of a bonus check. She'd get her usual pay up until the second week of May, after which she'd get basically her the, the rest of her entire annual salary. Makes sense? A year's worth of pay for two months' worth of work. Sounds like a bargain to me. It's the ultimate no-brainer, right? Now understand, this was to be a brief, temporary thing. But he really could use the help. And it so happened that Miss Retiree could have used the money so she agreed to it. But, with less than three weeks to go until the end of the school year, Mr. McFadass broke his promise <clears throat> and outright said he told her, uh, Mr. Tyree, that there would be no major bonus for her. In fact, he said there would be no bonus for her whatsoever, and if she didn't like it, 
she could pack up her shit and get out. <clears throat> That's exactly what she did. Now here's the thing. He got basically what he needed out of her. and So you can get substitute teachers to teach the journalism class easily enough, but what you need to understand, people, chasing Miss Retiree out of the school, that move left the newspaper office without an editor. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, <clears throat> like I said, officially, that's a student's job. But as I've said, in actual fact, that task is entrusted to the journalism teacher. A substitute teacher can teach the journalism class, but I guess nobody thought about who'd oversee the school newspaper. And so what happened? The school newspaper editor was basically entrusted with producing exactly one issue of the newspaper without any kind of oversight. That is a decision that I'm sure Mr. McFadass regrets to this very day. Actually, he's made other decisions since then that I'm pretty sure he regrets even more than that. Now, believe me, I'm going to get into that bullshit some other time. I think in the same episode where I talk about all this other high school shit now that I think about it. But anyway, my point is, you just wouldn't believe some of the stuff that jerk-off is guilty of. Anyway. So... The school newspaper um, editor, he was a friend of mine. He knew I'd had problems with Mr. Pervert. I'd had, to just kind of keep it short, I'd had conflicts with that teacher on more than one occasion. So when my friend, which is to say the school newspaper editor, saw Mr. Pervert's quote in that article, he knew he was sitting on a gold mine. And plus, look at it from his point of view. It was his senior year. He was graduating in just a few weeks. Hell, I think even just a few days by that point. I mean, what the fuck could anybody do to him by then? They had nothing. Nothing at all to threaten him with, and he knew it. So he printed the story unedited, which is to say, with Mr. Pervert's quote included with it. Partly, that was out of loyalty to me, and partly it's because he was always kind of a rebel to begin with anyway. And, of course, a major shitstorm ensued. I mean, who couldn't have predicted that? Now, all of this is to say that gossip shit just doesn't usually go into a school newspaper. I've pretty much outlined here the perfect storm of fucked up that would allow gossipy items to appear in print. But normally, it'd never happen. Never. Never ever. Not in a million years. But it's a fairly common thing with the torch, and it reaches a fever pitch in truth. There's just no way that Chloe would be allowed to print half the shit that she gets away with. No way whatsoever. At least, not under normal circumstances. This is one time, and I think maybe really the only time, that Chloe's style of running a newspaper just detracted from the story. Apart from that, though, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's funny. In a lot of ways, Truth is a very season one-oriented type of episode. <clears throat> I mean, it really is interesting to compare this to an average first-season uh, first show where we watch a character get exposed to kryptonite, uh, they gain some kind of strange superhuman ability, they go on some sort of rampage for their own personal gain, and then Clark has to shut him down. 
That rough summary applies as easily to any average season one episode as it does to truth. And people, that's not a criticism, right? I'm just saying I hadn't, I guess I hadn't really appreciated what a, what a season one throwback truth is until, until now. It's not a good thing and it's not a bad thing. It's just an observation. I'm a season one fan, remember? There are a few specific plot points, though, which prevent truth from being filler in the pejorative sense that a lot of those douchebag haters use the word. For starters, the main objective Chloe has through a good bit of the episode is trying to figure out how all of her father's job applications keep getting shot down. That's why she ever broke into the Luthercourt plant in the first place. More broadly, though, Chloe later coerces two confessions from Lionel. The first is, well, number one, personally, that he personally blacklisted Gabe Sullivan as retribution for Chloe uh, and her decision to back out of their deal to investigate Clark. And that's incidental. I mean, look, 10 to 1, Chloe already figured that much out for herself. But Chloe then gets Lionel to confess that he and Morgan Edge conspired to kill his grandparents, or his parents, Lex's grandparents, so that they could split the insurance money. Chloe records his confession in a voicemail. This plot point is important to what comes later, as if that wasn't obvious, so that's why, that's honestly, that's why I'm choosing to overlook it. But the fact is, Lionel walked into that hospital room knowing damn good and well Chloe had the ability to make anybody she spoke to tell her the absolute truth against their will. It's hard to believe that Lionel would enter into a situation like that, especially when a simple phone call probably would, would have been all the protection he needed. But whatever, truth as an episode needed this to happen, so I go with it. Luthercorp's truth project is called Levitas. Here's the thing, though. The Latin word for truth isn't Levitas. It's Veritas. But Veritas wouldn't be a very good title for this episode or that Luthercorp project, but honestly, that relates to things I just I can't get into right now. Suffice it to say, there's a reason for that. Something else. As part of the prep for the dreaded season four, it comes out that Lana's put in an application at an art school in Paris. Now, Lana's a teenage independent business owner. It makes no fucking sense whatsoever that she'd want to go to Paris to study art. There's nothing in her background or her current vocation to suggest it. In fact, It'd be a lot more logical for her to do a business management internship at Luther Corp or some such fucking place, or maybe study interior design or something because the talent, I gotta admit, looks pretty fucking cool, but none of those things would take her to France. And there's the rub. But studying art in Paris, it's just, it's just a bullshit romantic cliche that Goff and Miller haven't invested a single fucking bit of effort into earning. Even if Lana had been shown doodling or something once in a while, they'd have some kind of foundation for it. 
But Lana's always been the most aimless, directionless character on the entire show. Hell, to even call her a character is sometimes giving that cipher uh, that Clark's in love with way too much credibility. Still, I promised myself that I'd save my big Lana rant for just a little while longer, so the way I see it, if I've waited this long, so can you. But it's coming. And it's coming soon. Anyway. So, Lana wants to go study art in Paris. Fuck's sake, it's on the table now. And the dreaded season four looms ever closer, but... <sighs> Whatever. Yeah, so I think that's just about it for truth. Alright, now excuse me while I open my Coke here. Alright. So, episode 19, Memoria. I mean, fuck's sake, Memoria. This is one of the most important episodes of Smallville ever, if not the most important. Words fail me, and yet I have to talk about it anyway, so here goes. Everything here relates to deeper themes and implications. There's just no other way to do it. Smallville's main theme is that it's a TV show about fathers and sons. Too many storylines to ever hope to count all revolve around Clark's struggles with Jarrell, his love for Jonathan, Lex's struggles with Lionel, and all that. Now, throughout the run of the show, Clark and Lex frequently encounter other fathers and sons who are also at each other's throats. Memoria is thus a major shifting of gears. This is the one time the sh uh, in the show's history where mothers get their time in the sun. Now, that's not to say that fathers have nothing to do in this episode. Quite the contrary, but even the conflicts with or tension involving fathers are still filtered through mothers in Memoria. Throughout Smallville as a series, Lex and Lionel have both spoken very highly of Lillian Luther. I mean, hell, Lex has gone so far as to all but saint her. But we've never actually seen Lillian before. All we had to go on were Lex and Lionel's recollections. Most viewers probably inferred that Mother Teresa had to wear Lillian Luther pajamas based on everything that Lex and Lionel had to say about it. Now, the same can't really be said of Laura, which is to say Clark's biological mother. Literally, all we've heard from Krypton has come from Jarrell. And even though Clark's had an uneven relationship with Jarrell up to now, by and large, he just doesn't have a whole lot of fondness for his Kryptonian heritage. And that's due primarily to Jarrell. Now, that's how Clark feels to, to the degree that references to his true origins always refer either just to Jarrell or to his biological parents, quote unquote, in general. But never anything about his mother specifically. Clark and the viewers 
have inferred based on Jarrell's behavior that his biological must, uh, mother must have been just as bad as Jarrell. On that basis, Memoria is a sucker punch to everything we thought we knew about the history of these characters. In the episode Ryan from the first season, Lex tells Clark that his younger brother Julian died of sudden infant death syndrome. Here in the mighty season three though, back in the episode Shattered, Lionel implied that Lex might have had something to do with Julian's death. The initial premise of Memoria is that Lex killed Julian. But that doesn't last very long. With an assist from Dr. Garner and the Summerholt Institute, we discover the truth about Lillian Luther. She wasn't a saint. She was a murderer. She killed Julian, her own son. Summerholt also gives us a new perspective on Lara. Clark's fashioned a lot of prejudices about Krypton and Kryptonians based on Jarrell. But when Jarrell and Lara were preparing to launch Clark's ship to Earth, the only concern that Lara expressed was that Clark may not be loved by his adoptive parents. Whatever the real story with Jarrell might be, and trust me, we are going to get there. But whatever the real story with him might be, Lara was no monster. She loved her son and only wanted him to be loved when he arrived on his new home. Those are not the words or the concerns of a monster. They come from a worried, loving, heartbroken mother. But beyond all those things, though, we get a lot of insight into Lex's past. We've seen Lionel be hard on Lex as an adult, but it's interesting how similar and yet how different the Lionel-Lex dynamic was before Julian's death. In a lot of ways, Lionel started out as a kind of strict, but still fairly involved and nurturing father. Julian's death, supposedly at Lex's hands, was what truly drove the wedge between Lex and Lionel. Lex and Lionel could have been real family to each other under other circumstances. They could have had a, well, a, a basically normal relationship, but Lillian's the one who ultimately wrecked that. She killed Julian, and Lex took the fall for it. And here's the thing. Lillian had to know damn good and well who Lionel blamed for Julian's death. There's an issue here about Lillian that I'm going to deal with much later in the future, but for now, let it be said that she could have spoken up for Lex anytime she wanted. But she didn't. And so, if you're not in tears by the end of Memoria, dude, you don't have a soul. And I won't lie, dude, I, I cried like a bitch after Lex and Lionel's final confrontation in Lionel's office. Where Lionel tries to apologize for all the years of neglect, torment, and borderline abuse, and tries to tell Lex that he, that he really does love him. But it's too late. Lex won't even let him get the words out. Lex is already enough of a tragic figure as it, uh, as it is. Even if he really had been guilty of uh, killing Julian like Shattered implied, he still would have broken all our hearts. But the revelation that he fell on his own sword for, uh, for Julian's death just to protect his mother, 
hits home because it's true of how Lex has been portrayed in the show all the way through. Back in Zero, from the first season, Lex took the blame for Jude Royce's death at Amanda's hands because he knew that Lionel Luther wouldn't lift a finger to protect anybody else, but he'd move heaven and earth to save Lex. The same logic was behind Lex covering up for his mother. Lionel would have destroyed Lillian if he found out she killed Julian. Based on everything we know, about Lionel Luther from, se- from this mighty season three so far, Lex taking the rap for Lillian very probably saved her life. Speaking of Lionel, he's obviously got some idea that Clark's hiding something big. When Garner asks Lionel how Clark should be questioned when he's in that kryptonite fluid tank, Lionel cuts straight to it. He wants to know where Clark Kent comes from. Again, this relates to shit coming in, the, uh, coming in future seasons, so I don't want to get too far into it here. But this is big stuff going on here. Believe it. Now, I don't always r- remark on the directing, cinematography, and other, and, and other stuff like that for specific reasons, but honestly, you cannot overlook. You cannot skip. Miles Miller's contribution to Memoria. Beyond co-writing it, he also directed this episode. He uses really heavy and extreme lighting for most of the scenes, and it ultimately makes for some seriously powerful shit. Plus, he uses some pretty unique effects to transition from the modern day to flashbacks and back again. In a lot of ways... I gotta tell you, Memoria was a, it was a major risk for Goff and Miller to undertake. It's easy to forget that now, but remember that Memoria comes after Resurrection and Crisis, neither of which relate directly to the season arc, and also Legacy, which was, all things considered, it was a little bit underwhelming, and then Truth, which was a character-driven standalone episode which some asswipe critics out there would call filler. Memoria doesn't radically advance the season-long arc. It, it, it just... It, it, but it still speaks very heavily to character. Just not much to plot. Plus, it completely destroys illusions about Lillian Luther and Lara Jorel as mothers that viewers had subconsciously formed. People, in terms of dramatic reversals, I put Memoria and everything that it revealed about uh, about uh, the Smallville uh, mythos. I put all of that right up there with. No, I am your father. All that stuff, along with the fact that Memoria is sort of a a bummer episode, means it could have gone very wrong. Fans could have revolted over this. And if the episode wasn't as rock-solid perfect as it is, I truly believe, hand on heart, that's what would have happened. Memoria could have been where Goff and Miller completely lost their audience. Something else, in a lot of ways, Memoria is the Mighty Season 3's darkest hour. Some seriously heavy shit has happened so far this season, but I think Memoria 
that's where the the mighty third season pretty much bottoms out as far as gloomy darkness is concerned. I mean, a mother kills her own child. That is some dark shit. Apart from that, young Lex is played by Wayne Daglish. Now, I wouldn't say he much resembles Michael Rosenbaum, but honestly, that's really not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. Daglish plays young Lex as though he's been part of the series all along. He just slips right into character. Plus, he and Lionel play really well off each other, incredibly well off each other. And I hear tell that Wayne Daglish had no history with acting prior to Memoria, <clears throat> so you can only say that he's a natural. Smallville util- utilized a couple of actors to play Lex at various points in his life, but as far as young Lex is concerned, I think Wayne Daglish is actually at the top of the heap. On the one hand, I almost want to add that it's too bad that he never came back for future episodes, that pretty much this is it. We never see the kid again. On the other hand, though, maybe it's better this way. His performance here in Memoria is clean and perfect. It won't ever be complicated and watered down by possibly lackluster performances or scripts or anything like that in the future. Something else. Miles Miller never directed another episode of the show either. But the guy obviously has an incredible eye for cinema. Originally, when all we knew about Memoria was it was coming and then that was it, originally I thought this was going to be a vanity episode for Miller, but it isn't. This is the episode where you understand exactly what Miles Miller brought to the table. Now, what I'm, ab- what I'm about to say is reading between a lot of lines, but <clears throat> I get the impression that Miles Miller was the creative force behind Smallville's aesthetics and cinematography. Al Goff, he was the story man. He was the guy that uh, came up with all of the ideas and the, and the twists and the subplots and the season arcs and all that shit. But Miller was the guy who figured out how everything was going to look. Something else is John Schneider. He's completely absent from Memoria because he was probably balls deep in prep for Talisman, which he directed. That's the next episode that follows Memoria. Prep for Talisman was taking place while Memoria was in production. And as the director of Talisman, Schneider kinda, sorta had to be there to do prep. So, intentionally or not, that strengthens Memoria's mother-son themes. Jonathan would have had a lot to say about what happened in Memoria, both to Clark and others. For better or worse, that would have changed the dynamics of the episode. And honestly, I think it might have been for the worse. Another thing is, Chloe's completely absent from Memoria, and Lana's scarcely in it at all. As a matter of fact, Lana's basically only around to bring Lex's problem to Clark's attention in Act 1. After that, she's gone, pretty much. And as much as this is uh, Clark and Lex's episode, methinks Chloe and Lana both might have had a a, a perspective specifically about mothers. Now, that's not criticizing anything, because I, I, look, I truly love 
how focused Mamori is. I'm, I'm just saying. Anyway. There are certain additions Smallville made to the Superman mythos that I'm convinced were part of Goff and Miller's plan when they started working on the pilot. Now, they may not have had all the details sussed out ahead of time, but I think they had a pretty good idea of where the characters came from, where they were going, how they'd get there, and so on. A good example of what I mean here is how Lionel used Clark's adoption to strong-arm Jonathan in, uh, into encouraging the Rosses to sell the cream corn factory to Luthercorp. That story came off too well, and it was set up too early on for me to ever think that it was a late addition to the series. Now, maybe it was. I have no way of knowing, but I think Goff and Miller were very well aware of this angle from the very beginning. And honestly, I think the same is true of the revelations in Memoria. There were a lot of references to what a wonderful person and loving, gentle mother that Lillian Luther was for me to ever think Goff and Miller made it all up as they went along. Now, did they plan for Pete to discover Clark's secret in season two? Or for Chloe to temporarily develop the ability to force the truth out of people in truth? Probably not. But I'm convinced that certain core elements that ended up being foundational to Smallville's mythos, you know, things like Clark's adoption or Lillian Luther as a murderer and other things, they were developed possibly as early as the pitch to the WB network on what Smallville might be. Something else? Mark Snow's an unindicted co-conspirator in Memoria's Awesomeness. He developed a Young Lex theme for this episode. It's mostly just a simple little piano piece that plays during Lex's flashbacks, but it's, it's haunting and powerful. Memoria would be a lesser story without Snow's contribution. And honestly, that's not something you can always say about Mark Snow. Usually his scores are just a little bit perfunctory. You can hear them, and they generally do a good job of embellishing whatever's happening on the screen, but at the same time, there's really... There's just usually nothing all that spectacular about his work. I am honestly at a loss to think of much more than maybe a handful of truly memorable pieces done by Mark Snow. But I gotta tell you, man, his work in Memoria is first fucking rate. Anyway, there's so much to say about Memoria, and it feels like I've only scratched the surface, but that'll have to be enough for now, so time for a break. Be right back after these messages. Okay, doing the new promo, do not say take the dare. Do not say take the dare. Okay, go. Hello, darling. Nice to see ya. It's me, J. David Weeder, the Conway Twitty of podcasting. But please call me Dave. 
I host a show called Dave's Daredevil Podcast, where I talk about Marvel's Man Without Fear and Netflix superstar Daredevil. But I'm here to tell you that things have changed. Don't worry, I've still got more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at and a desperado love for Daredevil. And episodes of the show still come out each and every Sunday. But now, Dave's Daredevil Podcast is part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. That's right, the show can now be found at twotruefreaks.com, home of Earth's mightiest podcasts. And if you haven't tried the show before, I see the want to in your eyes. So take the time to check out Dave's Daredevil Podcast, because sometimes you need a podcaster with a slow hand. Dave's Daredevil Podcast, every Sunday at twotruefreaks.com. Take the dare. I have no self-control. Star Trek Comic books Mythology Video games Toys Star Wars Just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast presented by Two True Freaks Come join me Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with. And be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, I'm back now, and I've got a couple of things that I just want to run through here real quick before we call it a day, or call it a week, maybe, with this episode. I don't know. Don't how you look at it. Basically, in a bunch of previous episodes, and don't ask me which episode number, I truly don't remember, but in previous episodes, I've been known to say hey, this is what's going to be going on in the next bunch of episodes that we're working through here, and so keep a, you know, keep an eye out for that because it's going to be awesome. And then I end up doing something else. So what I want to do is talk about what I've got planned, at least for right now, with uh, 2016. And I I would totally understand... If some of you are a little bit skeptical, because like I say, I've made promises like this in the past, and then invariably, something else ends up happening. So, allow me to begin by saying, hand on heart, this is what's coming, okay? Now, there may be more stuff than just this, but for certain, this is how I'm going to spend my time in 2016. Everything that I'm going to tell you is planned. Some of it has already been, um, I've already gotten most of the, the prep work done for it, so all that needs to be done is, you know, getting everything all finished up and, you know, recorded and uh, edited and mixed, all that stuff, but basically I've, I've done all the groundwork for this, okay? Keep that in mind when I say that at the, uh, towards the end of December of this year, which is to say, starting next week, I'm going to start a series that's all about Batman and Superman. And 
if you look at the calendar, this may seem like sort of coincidental timing because in not very, very long from now, we're going to begin the countdown to the re theatrical release of Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. <clears throat> and that's what this series is uh, designed to tie into. Basically, the plan that I've got is to talk about Batman one week, Superman the next week, Batman the, ne uh, the, the week after that, Superman the week after that, etc., etc., etc. And then, near the end, do a Batman-Superman team-up story. And then, after that, do a sort of a retrospective of Man of Steel. And then, finally, after all of that, talk about my thoughts when it comes to Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. What did I think about that film? So, like I say, starting December the 22nd and then going right on through to March the 29th of 2016, I'm going to be talking about Batman comics, Superman comics, or comics that have both Batman and Superman in them. And so that's going to be uh, pretty much that. Now, the kind of convenient thing about this miniseries is that it, it kind of it scratches a couple of different inches. First of all, it ties in, like I say, with the theatrical release of Batman v Superman, but there are a couple of sort of one-off Batman comics and a couple of one-off Superman comics that I've always wanted to talk about and never really had a, uh, a chance to work that in, you know, because it, with this show, there was always something else that was going on. There was always something else that I needed to talk about so on and so forth. So this is a nice little opportunity to put all of that right. The other thing is that it also gives me a chance to record uh, with John M. Wilson, which I intend to do quite a bit. Now, he's not going to be joining me for every single episode of this Batman Superman series. Uh, it's just there's no way to make the schedule work for that. But he's going to be joining me for a shitload of episodes. And ultimately, that's what counts the most, in my opinion. So, you know, he is going to be there for a bunch of episodes, and he's also, the way that it is right now, I've, I've got it planned that he's going to be part of the Batman v Superman reaction episode. And so, going to have that going on as well. So, overall, I'm really looking forward to this series because it, it, it's going to be a nice little chance to talk about a diversity of material. You know, I'm going to be talking about Golden Age comics, Silver Age comics, Bronze Age comics, Burn Age comics. I mean, it, it really does run the gamut, you know, so it's not going to be just one thing, if that's what any of you are concerned about. It's not going to be just one thing. It's actually going to be a couple of different things, uh, a lot of different flavors and all this. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. That's what I'm hoping for. But this is a 12-part uh, series. Actually, you know what? I take it back. I think this is technically 13 parts if you count the Batman v Superman reaction episode. It's actually going to be 13 parts. What I'm going to do is actually suspend the uh, normal uh, big uh, big book episode that I would do for uh, March the 29th. Technically, Tuesday, March the 29th, that should be another episode of the big book report, but I'm preempting that. So, preempting it with uh, the Batman v Superman reaction episode. You know, and what Wilson and I thought of the movie, how do we like it, what was good, what wasn't so good, so on and so forth. So, there you have it. And so that's actually going to be a 13-part episode. So, I mean, I'm, this is a pretty ambitious thing, 
Really looking forward to it, and I think it's going to be a shit ton of fun. So, from there, uh, when you start getting into, I would say, April and really most of May of 2016, I don't, it's not that I don't have a plan. I do have a plan. And I know how typical it is for my plans to change, so I don't want to tell you what I'm planning, just in the event that it does end up changing, but I want you guys to understand I do have a plan, and I'm going to do all in my power to bring this across. But it, it's like I say, I mean, you guys have kind of suffered in the past when I say that, hey, such and such is going to happen, and then fucking it never happens, you know? I mean, I, I'll sit here and I'll tell you guys, yeah, man, I'm going to talk about, you know, this stuff, and it's it's going to be it's gonna be big, and it, 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 it's going to pull your pants down and spank your bare ass. It, it's going to be the greatest thing you've ever heard, and all this stuff, and fuck all happens so I don't want to have a repeat of that so this time I'm just trying to look out for you guys so when it comes to goings on in April and May I'm still trying to put all of this stuff together at the time that I record this so that's why I'm not going to sit here and make promises right now but I will make it as interesting as I possibly can be sure of that you know if you know what other movies are coming out you may be able to guess what I might be talking about in May or April and uh, May of 2016. So, something something to be aware of there. Think of it as a hint. So, moving on from there, starting with the end of May and then going into, I would say, probably the middle of July, I'm going to be talking about Batgirl and Robin. And it's going to be an, just a neat little six-part miniseries. I really... Uh, enjoy the ideas that I've had for it so far. I think that you guys are going to have a whole lot of fun with it. So we'll see, I guess. But basically, the way that it is right now, that's supposed to take place from June until, yeah, the beginning of June until the uh, right around the middle of July is that is it's going to be that six part uh, Batgirl and Robin miniseries. So there's that. And, um, oh, by the way, I should probably mention that in the midst of all of this stuff, you know, as all that stuff is going on, um, starting in April of 2016, I'm going to start my uh, coverage of the dreaded fourth season of Smallville. So keep an ear out for that. Um, the ideas that I've had for the fourth season so far, again, I think you're going to enjoy them. You know, they're a lot of fun. So it's going to be a little bit it's going to be a little bit of a change of pace, though, at least as far as Smallville is concerned, because if you're at all familiar with how I've talked about Smallville up to this point, it's always been a very positive, and I would say not quite gushing, but kind of gushing fan terms. And I have overall fewer positive things to say about the dreaded season four. So any of you who think of me as a sort of mindless, blind Smallville fanboy and I have no objectivity about this and I'm I'm just completely blind to all things Smallville. The dreaded fourth season may be where I start changing your mind and you'll find out just how impartial I truly am. So anyway, something to be aware of there. Again, that starts that's scheduled to start Tuesday, April the fifth. So just keep an eye out for that. So anyway, get back into the summer though. Um in August, I'm going to finally start my uh, Brian Michael Bendis I don't know, appreciation series. 
And PQ River, host of the Overnightscape, he suggested that I call the Bendis series uh, the Tremendous Bendis Weekly. And so, well, fuck it. That's about as good as uh, as good a name as anything else, right? So that's what I'm calling that series. So the Tremendous Bendis Weekly, just a, a quick little in and out five-part miniseries. And the idea is basically to talk about Brian Michael Bendis comics that I really enjoy. And look, if you guys listen to this, if you're not big on Bendis, that's fine. But I personally think that Bendis gets beaten up way too much online. And so the idea is to talk about comics of his that I really dig. And who knows, maybe I'll change your mind. So we'll just have to wait and see. So that's going to take me through to the end of the summer. And so following that, and all, and by the way, all of this, you know, I'm continuing the dreaded season four Smallville retrospective. So that's still going on in September at this point. That's where we're getting to now. Starting near the end of September, I'm launching a different series that's, I'm calling it basically Unfinished Business. Now you guys have heard me talk about this movie or this movie series, I should say, this movie series, or or that line of comic books, you know, that comic book title. And invariably what I say is, no, I don't know when, but at some point in the future, I'm going to come back and talk about this. And then invariably next week, I start talking about something else. And all it's not that I've never revisited a particular title I have, but it's just in the majority of cases, what I end up doing is, err on the side of giving you guys something new to listen to rather than more of the same. Unfinished business is where I'm going to start straightening out the ledger on that. It's ba- and the way that it is right now, unfinished business is scheduled to be a six-part miniseries. I've only got four episodes sort of planned right now, though, and those I can talk about. So in no particular order, I'm going to be revisiting Young Justice the Legion of Superheroes three boot series, both of which, by the way, I talked about when I first launched this show somewhere in like the first six episodes I ever did. I talked about the Legion of Superheroes and Young Justice, and I think that was actually the first time I ever said, hey, I don't know when, but I'm going to be coming back to this at some point in the future. Fucking never happened. So this is a chance to talk a little bit more about the Legion of Superheroes three boot series and Young Justice. Also, I'm going to be talking about Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. This is, think of this as being sort of a follow-up to Episode 99, wherein I talked about Star Wars Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. And the idea that I had was, again, you know, sort of finishing off this, this trilogy, right? The prequels. So this is obviously the next step in all of that. What I want to do is talk about Attack of the Clones in sort of more analytical terms, you know, because as with The Phantom Menace, I don't think it's as simple as, as saying the movie sucks, or for that matter, that the movie's awesome. You know, there are some good ideas and some maybe not so good ideas, and the idea is it, it's a little bit simplistic, I think to say that, you know, this movie is four out of five stars, you know, because that, at least for Star Wars, I need something more than that, you know? It's, I think for a lot of us, it's uh, it's a little bit of a complicated, shall I say, touchy subject. 
And I don't think it's necessarily quite so simple as to say that it's just good or that it's just bad. And so the idea is to kind of put the whole thing under the microscope, figure out what works, what doesn't, be honest about both of those things. Don't go in there with the agenda of tearing it apart or, for that matter, willfully ignoring any problems that it may have. Just basically try to be as objective about it as possible. And in the bargain, I can guarantee you I'm going to say things about Attack of the Clones that you have never heard anybody else say before. Ever. So if you're worried about yet more prequel analysis, you know, uh, haven't we all said what we had to say about the prequels by now, etc., etc.? A lot of people probably have. But number one, I haven't. And number two, you've never heard anybody say the things that I have to say about the prequels. Be sure of that. So, anyway, that's the Unfinished Business series. And like I said, I'm not telling you everything because it's going to, the way that it is right now, it's actually scheduled to be a six-part series. Now, that may change, but it is scheduled to be a six-part series. All I'm willing to say for sure, though, is I'm going to talk about Attack of the Clones, Legion of Superheroes, the three-boot series with Mark Wade and Barry Kitson, Young Justice, and also some Justice Society. So that's four episodes right there. There are still two that I'm not telling you about. And the reason for that is because that's sort of up in the air at this point. I am going to do the the Unfinished Business series. I just haven't decided for sure what the final two episodes are going to be just yet. And again, what I'm trying to do is make you promises that you're actually going to see. This is going to happen. You know, but I'm not going to tell you something unless it's happening. So that's why I'm not going to tell you what the final two episodes of Unfinished Business are, because I don't actually know for sure yet. So, but it is going to happen. The Unfinished Business miniseries, starting at the very end of September 2016, is definitely happening. So just keep an eye out for that. So, and again, it's going to talk about Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones, the Legion of Superheroes 3-boot series, Young Justice, and also Justice Society. So, it's like I say, it's just the last two episodes of that. That's what's up, up for grabs. So, anyway, once you um, move away from that, in November of 2016, I'm going to be pretty much finished. Uh, November the 15th, 2016 marks the release of the final episode of my Smallville Dreaded Season 4 retrospective. So, I'm going to finish, I'm going to begin and then finish... The Dreaded Season 4, all in one year, so that's good news. And I'm going to finish 2016 as a year proper with a series that's called It's All About Image. It's going to be a five-part mini-series, just a kind of quick in-and-out type of thing. And what I'm going to say for sure is I'm still planning the, the final... I say the final. I, I've really only gotten the you know one episode planned right now. And that relates to the Gen 13 miniseries. Now, I've got ideas and incomplete plans for the, you know, for other parts of the It's All About Image miniseries, but that stuff, it's just not quite as set in stone as I'd like it to be. And so, again, I don't want to make a promise and then have to, you know, break it later on. So I've got ideas, like I say, for what those other episodes are going to be, but I'm going to keep them to myself for the time being until I know for sure how this is all going to play out. So, and again, I mean, it's, it's at this, at the time that I record this, it's over a year away. And so I don't think it's, 
I don't think it's it's necessarily a bad thing that I don't have the very last part of 2016 all worked out just yet. But I do have ideas, I do have plans, and that should be that. Now, as I've worked through all of this, one of the things that I haven't talked about is the big book report that I do with Chris Honeywell. And the reason for that is because it looks like 2016 is going to be the end of the big book report. Basically, we've got the, or rather we released, the big book of thugs episode last week. This was on uh, December the 8th. So that was the big, uh, the big book of thugs. And so in terms of the big books that he and I are going to talk about, that leaves only two. On February the 2nd, 2016, he and I are going to talk about the big book of the Weird Wild West. So, that's something to keep an, keep an ear out for. And then, after that, the very last of the uh, big book series is... Uh, it, it, this is going to be July the 19th, the big book of Freaks, episode 157. And that'll be... That'll be it, because after that, we'll have gone through all of the big books that we are going to talk about. That still technically leaves on the table the big book of Grimm. And the thing is, I mean, the big book of Grimm, it's basically a bunch of fables and fairy tales and all this sort of stuff. And it's just not all that interesting to Honeywell or me. So we're not going to talk about that. The other big book is the big book of martyrs. Now... Not to get too far off topic here, but to me, religion is the most interesting subject in the entire world. Nothing to, is, is more interesting, at least in my opinion, than religion. But the thing is, not everybody feels that way. And honestly, my impression of, of Honeywell, he and I have never actually talked about it, but my impression of Honeywell is that he's just not a very religious type of guy. And so to sit him down and kind of force him through a book about Christian martyrs, I don't know, that, that seems, that's just really not his cup of tea. So why force something that, that isn't there? So um, like I said, that, that's why we're not going to be talking about the big book of Grimm and the big book of martyrs. So what that leaves is the big book of freaks which is going to be, again, Tuesday, July the 19th, episode 157. And that's going to be pretty much it for the Big Book Report series because there's nothing there's nothing else for us to talk about at that point. And so what Chris has suggested, and I'm not sure you know, exactly how, how all this is, this is going to work out, is saving basically the seventh episodes to do not exactly shoot the shit shows, but just talk about Big Book type of subjects you know just weird shit that you see on the internet or modern day conspiracy theories or or, or stuff like that basically something that that sort of ventures away from big books but also ventures away from comics and movies and all the other stuff that i usually talk about something that's a little bit more something that it's still i guess weird but it's weird in terms of being a little bit more off the beaten path and i don't know i kind of like the the sound of that actually. So that looks that, that I'm thinking that may be what we end up doing. But like I say, I mean, I've got, uh, well, really I've got until September of 2016 to figure it out because that's the next seventh episode. So I haven't, I have about that long to, 
to figure it all out. So, and that is pretty much going to be what 2016 is all about. So, um, I, what I intend to do is sort of give you more information as this stuff gets filled in a little bit more and I get more plans and a better idea of what's coming. But, you know, the way that it is right now, I think I've, you know, I think I've got a, a, a decent amount of 2016 figured out. And so, it, 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 I think in a, in a big in a big way, really, what it comes down to is actually recording and then releasing this stuff. But I, like I say, I've made these types of promises in the past, and a lot of times those promises went unfulfilled. The stuff that I've talked about in this episode, the things that I've actually you know, said hand on heart, this stuff is going to get released. Guys, it's going to get released. Now, I haven't necessarily told you everything that's going to get released in 2016, like I say, because some of that stuff is still sort of up for grabs. But I've probably given you about 80-85% of what I have in mind for for 2016. So, and again, you can take it to the bank. This stuff is happening, you know? Unless I keel over and die, I am going to release this stuff. You can you can be sure of that. So, keep an ear out for it. So, like I say, I want you guys to basically have a little bit more faith in me this time around. That when I say it's going to happen, it is in fact going to happen. So, actually, and you know what? When it comes to that Tremendous Bendis Weekly miniseries, I don't think I actually told you what is coming out for that, did I? Yeah, I'm looking at my notes right now, and I don't actually see that listed in there. So, tell you what. Um, I, the last... A, a Tremendous Bendis Weekly is basically going to be a five-part miniseries, but the last two parts of it, I haven't really sorted out just yet, but what I can say is that for three of the five, I'm going to be talking about the New Avengers storyline breakout. So basically New Avengers Volume 1, numbers one through six, that storyline, I'm going to be talking about that. I'm going to be talking about the Secret War limited series from 2004. Now this isn't Secret Wars from the 80s. This is Secret War from 2004, and this basically, um, I guess, kickstarted Marvel Universe stories from, I think it was something like 2004 to like 2012 or something like that, so it lasted a hell of a long time, so something to look forward to there, and then there's going to be Daredevil, Volume 2, number 26 to 31, a storyline called Underboss, and that was basically the first Bendis storyline on Daredevil. And obviously not the most famous Bendis storyline on Daredevil, but the first one. And so the last two parts of the of the tremendous Bendis weekly miniseries, I haven't actually totally committed to that stuff just yet, so I think I'm going to keep that to myself for the time being. And like I say, that's going to be a five-part series, and it's just only the first three parts that I've figured out so far. So... The last two parts of the Tremendous Bendis uh, weekly series. Mm, I don't know. I, I've got I, I've got some ideas there, but like I say, nothing nothing set in stone yet, and that's why I'm not going to make promises that I may not keep for those last two episodes. But I, like I say, the new Avengers show, the Secret War show, and the Daredevil show, those are coming. You can be sure of that. So. No changes in plans unless I die or something. There's not going to be something where I decide, well, you know what, fuck it, I'm not going to release this stuff. It will be released. Be sure of that. 
So, anyway, and that I think is going to be pretty much it for 2016. Like I say, there's there are things that I haven't actually planned just yet, so I'm not telling you everything. But what I have told you is going to happen, right? Unless I die or something like that, and you never know. But unless I die or something, this is going to happen. So keep an ear out for that. So anyway, and I think that's going to be pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link donate any amount at all tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with DeMonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>